Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about engineering, specifically what a systems engineer and a project manager at a huge company like Lockheed Martin is like, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has worked at Lockheed Martin Space for over seven years and he's had some incredibly interesting opportunities, which we're going to get into. But before I introduce you to Stephen Liu, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's newsletter that showcases upcoming guests and it gives you career insights and inspiration. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Stephen Liu, a project manager at Lockheed Martin Space, part of the huge Lockheed Martin Corporation. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's an American aerospace arms, defense, security, and advanced technologies company. It's employing over 110,000 people around the world. It's ginormous. Stephen first started at Lockheed in 2014, right out of college, as a systems engineer associate. Three years later, he was accepted into a highly competitive engineering leadership development program known as ELDP, this this is still at Lockheed. It's a three-year job rotation program for early career high potential engineers. During his time in the ELDP, Stephen completed three separate rotations, one in risk management, the other in mission operations, and the third in project management. Then in August of 2020, Stephen was promoted to become a project manager of missile obsolescence. See, I can't even say it. I have no idea what it is, but I can't wait to learn about it. And he was focused and is focused on supply chain projects. He is managing multi-million dollar projects to ensure issues with the supply chain are taken care of before they would impact production. And in case you think that job doesn't keep Stephen busy enough, it doesn't. Because in his free time, Stephen's side hustle is as a LinkedIn influencer, a content creator, as well as a career coach. Needless to say, all of this was quite surprising to those who knew Stephen back in college. I'm guessing maybe even back in high school, because back then, Stephen was a self-described introvert. He didn't like public speaking. He was afraid of it. Not 
anymore. Over the last several years, Stephen has worked hard to conquer that fear, and he now teaches others how to do the same. Stephen, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated on life and ready to go? I am caffeinated. I am hyped to, to be here. And yeah, thank you, Andrea, for such a wonderful introduction. I, I need to get that transcript of it later so I can put it in my bio and share it for uh, any other future needs there. Oh, gosh. Well, happy to help. And as you and I were chatting just a few moments ago, you're not really a Java lover, are you? No, I'm not. I never never got used to drinking coffee. Never, never saw the need, actually, either. So how the heck do you get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning every day? I don't know. At this point, I think I'm just I'm just used to it. My very first job at Lockheed, my lead came in to work at five. So, you know, obviously I didn't have to come in at five, but, you know, I said, well, you know, I can't come in at nine either. So we compromised at 6.30 or seven. So in order for me to, to meet that, I didn't wake up at 5 a.m. So, you know, I've been had, like Andrea said, had different jobs at Lockheed, but kept it at 5 a.m. wake up schedule. So uh, I think just waking up and just knowing, hey, you know, I got stuff I need to do today. Never got used to drinking coffee. So I guess I don't need it. And yeah, people are amazed. Lockheed went, how do you wake up so early and not have to drink coffee? And I said, I don't know. I'm just used to not having to drink any. See, I love it. And maybe if I made you the coffee that I brew, because I grind my beans and I have a whole little ritual, it would probably be something you would like. But I wouldn't want to be the one that, I don't know, sullied your pure system with caffeine, Stephen. I, I want to, you know, the, the body is a temple. All right. You know, Stephen, that I interview professionals in dozens of different industries, and some of them do work in fields where I've worked before or maybe have similar skill sets. And so to me, and so I can actually envision myself doing their jobs. That is not the case here, my friend, because this talking about engineering is actually pushing me out of my comfort zone because I am not a math and science person. So I am stoked to learn from you. Don't laugh at me. So what the heck does a project manager of missile obsolescence mean? And what is Missile obsolescence, Stephen. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a mouthful, and I even I can't even spell it right the first time, no matter what. But basically, I work on a missile defense program, and we have thousands of parts as part of our interceptor, part of our product here. And you, we want to make sure that there's a, a consistent and constant supply chain. But sometimes supplies go out of business. Sometimes certain materials go obsolete. So we want to have a head start on that. And we want to make sure these parts don't go obsolete, right? And that's part of the word of obsolescence. And we, you know, we usually get a heads up from the supplier saying, hey, we're going to finish our current contract, but we're done after that. So let's say that's two years from now. So within those two years, we have to find an alternative source, make sure that part is qualified and meets all the requirements within those two years. So there's always that hard deadline at the end, there's a hard schedule deadline. But then you have to go find other sources, you have to go test them and qualify. So it's a very long process that may take longer than two years. And you know, what if your schedule slips? What if things take longer? Then you're you know, you're pretty much screwed. You're gonna impact our production line. We need every single one of those thousands of parts for, for our product. So there's a lot of strategies that we use in project management. For example, we try to buy as much old material as much as possible to push out that let's say that two year deadline 
to maybe four years. So we have some breathing room. We try to find efficiencies. We try to expedite things in, in our schedule, see what we can do in parallel rather than in order. And so it's a lot of different, you know, with project management, you have to look at so many different aspects of it, not just the schedule, but you also look at the cost, look at the technical part of it, look at the, the quality and results of it. So there's a lot that we have to look at. But, you know, what we do is, is, is extremely important. You know, we work in work in missile defense. So our product is extremely important to, you know, the needs of our, of our soldiers, of our citizens here in the U.S. So we just need to make sure we have that consistent and constant supply chain. And if there's any issues, be able to mitigate them before we run out of parts. Terrific. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. So how many parts are you responsible for tracking? So I am currently working on three different projects. So there's three different parts, unique parts. Some of these are multiple parts in different areas, but three unique parts where we are, we have identified the, the replacement. We now we're you know, in the process of qualifying it, going through testing, making sure it meets all the requirements. But we do have a whole team outside of that. We call them the surveillance team. So they scan everything. They scan across the board. They know all this, every single part. They know when we're going to run out. And as part of that, you know, if you see a bunch of parts are going to run out, let's say four years from now, instead of testing each part and finding replacement for every single one, you know, it might be a good idea to do a, a redesign of a subsystem because then you can have brand new parts, you can have increased capabilities as well. So personally, I manage three different projects, but we have a whole team that just looks across the board and gives us that heads up that, hey, we're going to run out this part, you know, five years from now or three years from now or whatever. And then we come up with strategies on how to, how to solve that problem. And how many project managers are there doing what you do at Lockheed? So in terms of my program, there's at least dozens. And every single program with every single product we have, you know, obsolescence is, is a big deal, right? Because you can't guarantee that you have a constant supply chain for 20 years, right? For the lifetime of your product. So I mean, with project managers, there's, there's so many, so many of us here at, at Lockheed. I, I can't even give you a, a clear number. I can't even give you a ballpark, but it's, there's a lot of project managers and there's a lot of program managers as well. So are you like amazing when it comes to the groceries that you need staying on top of like laundry detergent and milk and eggs and all of that? Definitely am. I, I'm, a, I'm a planner. So I, I, I'm a big you know, list person. I like using Excel because I visualize things that way. And yeah, you know, when I go shopping, you know, let's say I need to get five things. I already mapped out the route I need to take in the store to get all I need. And I don't go buy anything extra. So if I can hold it on all, all in my hands, I don't need a cart, and I don't bring a cart with me. I only need a couple items there. So no, you're, you're exactly right uh, in terms of the, the planning <laughs> and having that list for, for grocery shopping. Fantastic. So what would you say back to work are your roles and responsibilities as a project manager focused on supply chain projects, three of which you are currently juggling? There's a lot of different parts that I need to look at, not, not parts, but different aspects of the project I need to look at as, as a project manager. And that was one of the biggest things I had to overcome and still get better as a project manager. My background is in engineering, so I'm focused on just the technical, you know, create this drawing, update this, do that. So I'm only focused on one thing at a time. But as a project manager, you're looking at the same problem at from five or six different perspectives. And that relates to the people I talk to on a weekly basis. So for example, I have to, I have meetings with the supplier multiple times a week just to make sure they're on track with maybe their uh, procedure development. Maybe they're on track with their testing that they're doing right now, getting the results there. But I have to go talk to our engineering team to make sure that what the supplier is doing is meeting our requirements. We review their test reports. We review their data, making sure it's what we expect. Then I meet with our finance team to make sure 
every single month? Am I on budget? Am I within cost here on my project? If it looks like we're overspending, how are we doing? What are we doing to, to mitigate that? I meet with our planners who deal with the schedule. So I look at our you know, projects and, oh, okay, what's our deadline? How much margin do we need? If this task flips out two months, is that going to break our project? How are we going to mitigate that? And then I have to go present to program manager. I take all this information from the supplier, from my engineers, from finance. Could have to be able to understand all that information and present it in a way to program management and make sure that they understand, as well as our customer, I'll meet with them on a, at least a weekly basis as well. So, so many different aspects I have to be on top of multiply that with three different projects. So when I started, they gave me six or seven projects right off the bat. So I was talking about one project, what's going on with one project instead of this one. But you know, as I got more comfortable in the role, I kind of had to change the way my brain works. So instead of focused on one thing at a time, instead of pulling information from a single bucket, I have to have multiple buckets of information in my head and be able to switch quickly. So taught me a lot about being organized, taught me a lot about a different way of thinking to, to be efficient uh, in what I do as a project manager. Gosh, I would think because you anticipated what my question was, was how do you keep from confusing the three projects? How do you like to organize yourself? You mentioned you like Excel. Are there any other management tools that have been helpful to you? Yeah, so I started using Microsoft OneNote a lot when I started this role as a a project manager, just on a high level, just one tab for every single project I, I have. And then from each one, you know, I break it down into the different types of meetings I have. So maybe I have a supplier meeting every week. Then I have finance information. Then I have schedule information. Then I have, you know, maybe specific topics, right? If, if one, if we have a hot issue within one, I create a specific cap for it. And just having all that information organized, and I can always refer to it because, yes, you know, I can save all the emails, but it's just so hard to find, find there. So keeping it things organized as much as I can and knowing where things are, where I can always refer to it, because. You know, with these projects, there's always new people coming in. There's always, you know, just in any role, engineers, finance, you know, even suppliers. Just be able to have all this background information and just have it ready to go whenever. It, it comes in handy a lot. So I use Microsoft OneNote. I think there's a lot of different tools you can use out there. This is just something I have at work. And I've you know, learned to really utilize it. I also use it as a to-do list because I can flag things. And I can keep track of, oh, you know, these are things I need to follow up on. These are things I need to do, especially with across all these multiple projects. There's a lot of things that I need to follow up on. And how long does the average project run? Yeah, so these projects go for at least two to three years. They're the ones that I work on. And this is just the execution of it. There's at least three to six months, maybe even a year beforehand, where we're trying to create a contract with the government or the government gives us the government gives us a, a statement of work. We come up with a proposal. We give that to the government. We negotiate. We go back and forth. We agree on it. Then we get a contract. Then we turn that around. We got to work with the supplier because we have to have a contract with them because they do you know, some of the work as well. So, you know, just the execution part of it, just the qualification, uh, just coming up with the test plan, running through the qualification testing, getting that plan approved. That's you know, somewhere from you know two to three years, but you have at least maybe a year on top of all that with all the proposal planning stuff that comes before that. And these projects right now that you're working on are for missiles? Yes, for a missile defense program. So our product intercepts other missiles you know, before they you know, hit whatever target that they're going after. Got it. So take us into a typical day for you right now during the pandemic in Sunnydale, California. I take it you are working from home. You are not going into the office. What does a typical day look like for you? So I do do work from home. I would say every day is different. I do have sort of a typical week. A lot of the meetings I mentioned earlier, meeting with the suppliers, meeting with the customer, with finance, with engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Those are more weekly meetings. So that's kind of how I plan out the week. So 
I mean, on a typical day, I, I got anywhere from four to eight to maybe even 10 meetings sometimes, getting stats from different people, maybe even just ad hoc meetings, just, hey, let me get the technical team together. We got this update from our supplier. Uh, let's talk about it. What's, what's our path forward? What's our decision on it? So a lot of different meetings and just being efficient with that time. You know, if, if there's any downtime, being able to review procedures, being able to look at our schedule and, and make sure that matches with what our supplier gave us. Uh, looking at the finances, coming up with plans and, and mitigations if we're going to be over budget or if we're going to overrun our, our costs here. So every day is different. But I would say each week you see a cycle uh, in terms of a weekly basis. But even every week, you know, you have all these different ad hoc meetings just because issues come up left and right. Are those the tag ups that you mention in your resume? Because you talk about how you conduct weekly tag ups. And I'm guessing that's like that's specific language unique to Lockheed, I'm guessing, with engineering, suppliers, finance planners, program management, and customers. Exactly. Yeah. So I I mean, I could just call it meeting. Maybe I should change it to meeting. But yeah, no, tag up. They can be informal or they can be formal as well. Got it. In reviewing your resume, and as you can tell, Stephen, I really reviewed it. A couple of things jumped out at me, and I'm not sure if this is something that is random or if, in fact, that may be one of the objectives, one of the measures of a job well done. And that is, I've noticed that you cite metrics showing that you have, in some cases, not only stayed within budget and on schedule, but in some cases, you finished a project six months ahead of the need date, as you did with the complete O-ring project, or you found efficiencies as you did on the EMI filter project. Are these KPIs or these key performance indicators? Uh, I would say those are a little more overall, overall just results from the project. We do have monthly reviews of, as you could call them, KPIs, we use something called earned value management. I think it's a little more specialized within the uh, defense world. But basically, it's just a, a ratio of how much you spent so far and you know what you plan on spending and how much work did you plan on doing and how much work did you actually do. So it's a ratio basically where you know you want to be as efficient as possible. So the baseline is one, you know, 1.00, where yeah, we did everything on time, everything on schedule. We spent exactly to the dollar what we spent. If you're at 1.10, we spent 10% less money than, than we had to spend. And we're, you know, our schedule is on track. But if you're at 0.90, then hey, we spent 10% more money than we, than we anticipated. And now we got to figure out how to catch up. So those are the kinds of metrics that I look at. But kind of the overall, you said the schedule savings, the cleaning projects early, those are just the overall project execution in terms of finding efficiencies and getting things done a lot sooner than, than we need them. I just thought that was interesting because I don't, in many jobs, doing what is required, staying within budget is enough. But I think in corporate America, especially if you come in under budget, if you find ways to save money, if you get your job done faster, this is how you will be promoted in that company. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah. If you're just there, if you're doing what your job asks you to do exactly, then you're just going to stay at the same level because you're not going above and beyond. You're not exceeding what you're supposed to be. And when it comes to that level of that promotion, you're looking at the next level. Can this person perform at the next higher level? And if you have the evidence that you have that, hey, I've done things faster, I found these efficiencies, I, I made things you know, much more faster or, or much more efficient, you know, that's justification for you. But if you're just doing exactly what you're being told and delivering things exactly what they export, then you're just doing your job. 
and that that's you know yes that's required but that's nothing outstanding or that's nothing extraordinary special yeah you're just checking the box Stephen we may have listeners who are still in college right now who think they want to go into engineering and work at a company like Lockheed Martin what do you wish someone had told you about what this job and culture would really be like that was a surprise to you maybe even after you started? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, especially in my very first job coming right out of school, was I was worried that people weren't willing to help me because they were afraid I'm going to take over the job. Because here comes a new person, you know, and I'm an older person, I'm about to retire, or you know, this new person is much cheaper, they can do my job a lot cheaper. So that was kind of the mindset I went in that, oh, you know, I'm kind of, I'm going to be on my own here. The team's not going to be you know, supportive of you know, helping me, but it was actually the complete opposite. And, you know, I've had five different jobs so far, but in every single job, everyone was extremely helpful. Everyone was extremely supportive, you know, asking me how I can help. And I always return a favor asking how I can help them. And that kind of shared knowledge, that kind of support is extremely important because these older people who are looking to retire, they know they need to pass on their information, pass on their knowledge to the next generation in order to keep the program going. Because it's such a legacy program. It's been going for so long. Once they retire, you know, all that information is in their head. It's not in the company anymore. So that's the biggest thing I, I realized that, especially here at Lockheed, everyone's so supportive. Everyone's so willing to help you. So you know, go in with that mindset that, hey, I'm here to, to make a difference. I'm here to contribute. And I'm here to learn. And, and people really resonate with that. Wonderful. As I mentioned in the introduction, you were selected to join the Engineering Leadership Development Program, that three-year leadership job rotation program for early career high potential engineers. How would you describe that experience for you? What kind of a difference do you think that it made or didn't make in your career? Yeah, that was definitely the highlight of my career so far, I guess, on, on a whole. As part of the program, as you said, I got to do three different job rotations within three years. So every single year, I'm doing something different. I go to a different program. I go learn new skills. I go work with different people. Yeah, like I said, learn new skills. And every job is different. So I, I learned a lot in every single one of those roles. As part of this program, we also have leadership conferences every year. So all these different leadership development program participants from engineers, from operations, from finance, all the different groups. We have a conference every single year. We all get together and we just go through leadership training, go through project management training, and just being in that environment surrounded by a lot of like-minded people with the similar drive, similar motivation, really motivates me to, to, hey, I need to get better. I need to be the best I can be. So overall, the job rotations definitely opened my perspective on the different opportunities I have here at the company. And also pick up new skills. And also the conference is just a huge networking opportunity. This is people from all around the country, all from our different sites. Just have that huge networking opportunity and just having that learning opportunity as well at these conferences. Excellent. At the top of your resume, I want to say it was like the upper third, you list out the soft skills and then the management skills that you've acquired. And I was surprised to see that you've listed out four management skills and six soft skills. The six soft skills included leadership, public speaking, communication, mentoring, teamwork, and presentation skills. Is that because soft skills are in fact more important than the hard? Or was it simply because you were stating a fact? I would think soft skills make a much bigger difference than, than the hard skills. Because the hard skills you can just learn from Googling, from reading a book, from you know, from YouTube or whatever resources online. But the soft skills is just something you need to do. 
something you just have to try and practice and, and get better at. And that makes a huge difference because if your soft skills are terrible, if you have no idea how to communicate, no idea how to listen, then no one wants to work with you because you're just hard to work with. So it doesn't matter if you're super smart, but if you just can't share that information, if you can't convey that information in a certain way, so other people can understand that you're stuck. So I really think the soft skills, you know, like the ones you listed there, just show how well I can work with different types of people and how well I can work in different types of environment. And that makes me a lot more versatile and a lot more flexible that I can just jump into any role. And that really helped when I was doing those rotations because I was jumping from role to role every single year, uh, just taking those same exact soft skills and applying them in just a different situation, but still having an impact no matter where I was. I think that's really important for young people who are in the STEM field, especially to hear, because they may think, well, I've got all of this very technical knowledge and that's enough. But I know because I'm in the career space, how important soft skills are. So I wasn't sure how much you were telegraphing that it felt like you were and now you're confirming that for me. So I'd like to flash back really quickly, Stephen, to when you were in college. You went to San Jose State University and you majored in computer engineering. I usually ask my guests if they knew what they wanted to do when they graduated, but I can see again just by looking from your resume that you did because you graduated in December 2013 and you joined Lockheed in January, one month later in 2014, as a systems engineering associate. So you knew what you wanted to do. When did you realize that you were more interested in systems engineering and less interested in the computer engineering? And was that a period of anxiety for you? Yeah, I, I got a, a funny story to, to respond to, to your question here. So yes, I did study computer engineering. But even when I was in school, with computer engineering, it's half hardware and half software. I always enjoyed the hardware side more. Like I didn't mind writing software as long as it tied into hardware. So I don't mind writing code to control an RC car, make it move on its own. As you said, I graduated in December of that year, but I actually interviewed with Lockheed April of that year, so eight months before. But what happened was Lockheed took so long to get back to me for that interview. Before they called me in for an interview, they had my old resume. So when I interviewed in April, they thought I was graduating in June. But I went to the interview and I said, hey, here's my resume. I'm graduating in December, not in June. So whatever slot they had me in as a software engineer in June, I couldn't fill it because I didn't graduate yet. So basically, I got a job offer eight months after I graduated as a software engineer. And then in January, when they tried to put me in the team, figure out where to put me, the week before, the recruiter called me and said, hey, this team you're supposed to be in, they don't have any budget, so you're going to join this team. I had no idea who the old team was. I had no idea who the new team was. So I was like, okay, well, went into work the first day and no idea what I was going to be working on. And you know, met with the manager. The manager never met me before. And on day two, we walked through our res- walked through my resume, and he said, "Yeah, I got enough software engineers already, but Garrett needs a lot of help." And Garrett was the system integration lead in, in the lab, I, in the job I worked in. So he said, "Go follow Garrett around." So that's how I became a, a systems engineer. I didn't mind that first job at all. I really, really enjoyed that first job because it was very hands-on. I got to touch hardware. I got to solve software. It was a very hands-on job, especially right out of college. It was really what I was looking for. So that's how I started as a systems engineer and, and never looked back. Actually, about two years into the, to that job, I asked my manager, can I change my title to systems engineer? Because that reflects what I'm doing rather than what a software engineer does. And I'm being compared to other software engineers. 
So made that title switch. And as I said, really, really enjoyed that first job. I didn't mind switching over to systems anyways, because I was more of a hardware person anyways. But yeah, no, that's kind of what happens. You know, your career takes twists and turns that you don't have control of, but you just got to roll with it. And every opportunity is a learning opportunity. Yes. And in this case, it turned out for the best. It really did. When did you realize that engineering was what you wanted to do? We talk quite a bit in the Espresso Shots episode about the importance of passion and telegraphing that passion to hiring managers, to recruiters, if this is what you really want to do. And that's hard to do if you've been forced to study engineering, maybe by your family or, you know, some kind of pressure. When did you realize, Stephen, that this was something you felt passionately about? Yeah, I would say it's around around high school. I was just thinking, what AP classes do I want to take, right? What class credits do I want to get for college that would help me you know, graduate a lot sooner and get that earlier, earlier knowledge? So at that point, I, you know, I wanted to focus a little more on engineering, right? Other than compared to something like in business or liberal arts. I always wanted to get an engineer because, as I said, my first job was very hands-on. That's why I really enjoyed. So I always had to enjoy that hands-on aspect of engineering. So I ended up taking AP Physics my junior year in college. And before senior year, you kind of apply to colleges. So I applied for engineering. Oh, you, I you meant junior year that. in high school. Sorry to interrupt. You said junior year in college. So you you took physics your junior year, AP Physics your junior year in high school. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And senior, and, you know, I'm applying to colleges and I was thinking, well, you know, I want to do engineering, but what kind of engineering do I want to do? You know, I live in San Francisco Bay Area, basically Silicon Valley. So I said, hey, well, you know, maybe they'll study computer engineering. If I didn't study any coding beforehand, that would have really helped when I took my first coding class in college. But I, I stuck with it and just having that passion of, you know, this is what I want to do. Right? This is what I, this is why I'm studying engineering. I, you know, I like being hands-on, like solving problems. I like figuring out how things work. So that really helped motivate me and help encourage me and push me throughout college, especially when the classes got tougher. So something else that existed back when you were in college that you weren't yet motivated to change was your fear of public speaking. On your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as shy introvert. And then there's a little right arrow pointing to the words public speaker. So I'm assuming that's signaling the growth. You have transitioned from being a shy introvert to a public speaker. Can you talk a little bit, Stephen, about how and why you made that transition and in fact started a hashtag 52-week challenge to post videos every week on LinkedIn back in 2018. And I believe if this number is current, you've actually created over 140 videos sharing career tips and advice. And in effect, you've been mentoring thousands of people over the last several years. Yeah, excellent, excellent point there. So yes, I started as a, as a shy introvert, you know, came from that engineering background where you're sort of awkward and in conversations, awkward in public, but you're, you know, you're a smart person. You just don't like talking to people. And also coming from an Asian background where you're taught at an early age to, you know, respect elders and be respectful, be quiet, don't speak up. So that just ties all together, just being a shy introvert. And in 2020, actually it started in 2017, I started developing a growth mindset and wanted to share my goals with as many people as possible to hold myself accountable to, to achieve them. So I started writing monthly articles on LinkedIn to 
helped me achieve my goals by holding myself accountable and sharing with as many people as possible. So near the end of 2017, I'm still in that growth mindset. And I'm thinking, well, obviously, the next progression is to do something weekly on LinkedIn. But what, what, you know, what can I do weekly? Around the same time, I had a good friend of mine posted the first ever video I've seen on LinkedIn. And it was just him with the cell phone in the park. I, have, I can't remember what he was talking about. So I said, weekly videos. But then what is 52 things I can talk about? Because I'm a planner. What's 52 things I can talk about for my weekly videos? And I decided that, well, I've been to a lot of presentations and seminars and mentors and have mentors. And I've you know, taken notes throughout all these different presentations. So I can possibly come up with 52 things to talk about. So that jump-started my 52-week challenge to create videos every single week on LinkedIn. And in 2018, just pulled one from the list, did a video about it. I will admit the first 25 or 26 were really, really terrible. My first one, I didn't even look at the camera. I kept looking away. My voice was super quiet and, and, and you know, I uh, just kept stuttering. It was just, you know, looking back, it was really bad, but that's the best I could do at that point. And I just powered through, persevered, whatever you want to call it. And every single week, just noticing, because I go through my videos, noticing my tendencies, fixing them, getting more confident, getting better at public speaking, getting more comfortable with it as well. So I went through that whole challenge in 2018, decided to do another 52-week challenge in 2019, where I didn't have a list anymore because I ran out of things to talk about. But I talked about kind of what I was dealing with, what I was going with uh, in my life at that time. I started a new rotation. So I talked about what I do for a new job. I was doing grad school at the same time. So I talked about stress management, time management, how to be efficient with your time. I just came up with whatever things that I was dealing with at, at the time for my videos. And that really helped make those videos a lot more personable and make my stories, what I share, a lot more relatable and, and resonated with the, with the much larger audience. And, you know, as you said, I've been doing weekly videos ever since. I uh, did that all throughout 2020. I started experimenting with different types of videos. I did some cooking videos in the beginning of the year that maybe I should bring back. I uh, did some 10 second tip videos. But I, I think it's way over 140 videos at this point. If you count every single week in, in, in three years, that's about 150. Now I'm doing my new 52 week challenge this year is to do a weekly LinkedIn live stream. So I just did number 10 last week and I have guests lined up to be, be guests on my show all the way through September. So I'm just going through that. And, you know, it's a different type of challenge. The wow. You have to be live. You can't just record a bunch of videos in advance and post them. So it's a new challenge every single week, having a new topic, having a new guest and being available to, to do that live stream. I'm just super impressed by everything you've said, especially the fact that you've booked out to September. It's not even the middle of March yet. That is some serious planning. My hat is off to you, Stephen. What advice do you have, Stephen, for other shy introverts who may cringe at the idea of going on camera, even if only on their phone, but want to get over that fear, what would you recommend they do? I would say two things. Don't overthink anything and don't worry about what other people will think. And these two sort of tie together. So especially with video, we're, we're very self-conscious about how we look and how we sound because we normally don't look at ourselves in the mirror and we normally don't record our voices and hear what we sound like. So especially with that first video, you're like, hey, I look a little funny. What's that, what's that mole? Or your voice, you know, my voice sounds off or something. Don't worry about that. Worry about the message. Worry about the words you're trying to say and, and put that out there. And especially with the, with video, it's, it'll never be perfect. Accept the fact your video will never be perfect, especially the first one. You're going to stutter a bit. You're going to trip over your words, whatever. Just post it. And why I like posting on LinkedIn is because it's real people. It's real profiles. No one's hiding behind a fake name or an anonymous name. And you're just going to, and because it's such a professional, it's a professional platform. People are going to be supportive. People are going to be positive. So 
don't worry about, oh, would anyone watch my video? Would anyone care about my message? Or what are people going to think? Are they going to judge me how I look or how I sound? No, 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 no. Don't, don't worry about that at all. Just put it out there and see what the results are after the fact. So just do it. Don't assume what people are going to say. Don't assume what people are going to think. You don't know that until you actually post it. So that first step is definitely the hardest. I had that first video ready to go and I just couldn't upload it. I sat there for 15 minutes, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I actually carried through with my 52 week chunks because I told everyone in that first video, I'm going to do 51 more videos that year. So I'm actually glad I did that and I followed through on it and you know, brought me to where I am today, You know, being on a podcast and, and having a weekly LinkedIn live show. And what other benefits have you gotten out of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and developing really more of a comfort level with public speaking, not thinking twice about doing it live, not thinking twice about coming up with guests for a year, just doing it? What have you seen the changes in the way that you carry yourself at work, at the way you act, the way you act in the office? Yeah, it definitely does. Especially in my job as a project manager, I have to communicate, I have to talk with so many people. And if I just lack that confidence, where it's like, oh, no, I got to go talk to program manager, I got to talk to a director, or I got to talk to the customer, and I'm just nervous, that shows. And as a project manager, you can't really show you lack confidence. If you're not confident in what you're saying, and it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know who will make it on time, or I don't know if you can deliver, it just shows you, you don't have control over your project. So I think with the weekly videos, with the public speaking, it just helps give me it helps give me a lot of self confidence in myself, and just being comfortable in any situation where I have to speak in public, and I'm not speaking on stage to 20 people every time I present, but just speaking to the audience, whoever it is, just knowing that hey, I'm just here to, to share my message and and share my status or or you know share whatever my project is, what's going on in my project, and just having confidence when I speak that that goes a long way, and I've gone through different types of deep dives and audits and things like that and going through these different mock interviews, people told me that, hey, you sound really confident. And I said, hey, I really had no idea what I was talking about. But just having that confidence you know, when I'm speaking and explaining my numbers, explaining our decisions or justifications, you know, that goes a long way to show that you are confident, you're, you know what you're talking about. Well, I think you're fantastic. So two final T for C questions, Stephen. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed at something. And the most important part here is how you persevered, how you were able to push through to the other side. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. That's a great question. And that's one of my favorite questions to, to answer. If we talked about earlier, I got selected to the Engineering Leadership Development Program, or ELDP for short, three years into the company. But I actually applied for it two years into the company. I applied, I made it to the interview, but I wasn't selected. And I was super bummed at that point because everyone else that made it, I knew them personally. Like they were good friends. I just really wanted to be in that same cohort as them. But you know, unfortunately I didn't I didn't make it. But what I did was I asked the program manager for feedback. I said, What can I do better in the interview to get selected next year? He said, You need more project management experience and you need more leadership experience, which I thought was ironic because I, I mean that's why I'm going to the leadership development program to get more leadership experience. But anyway. Need more project management experience, need more leadership experience. For the project management experience, I decided to go get my master's in engineering management. So I started that uh, you know, soon after, within six to nine months of that. But to get that leadership experience, I was thinking, how can I get that? I'm an entry-level you know, employee engineer. I report to my lead who's been in the same team for 25 years. He knows everything about it. I can't just go in and you know become the lead. So what can I do? I decided to participate and join one of our employee resource groups at Lockheed Martin. 
So we have these different employee research groups that are called ERGs for short for all these different minority groups. So there's one for women, there's one for African-American, for Hispanic, for LGBT. So I joined the one called PAN or Professional Asian American Network. So I went to the, the first, you know, the whatever meet, monthly meeting they had. So, hey, I want to take on a leadership position here. So I became the mentoring and professional development chair. This was in you know, mid to late 2016, two years into the company. So as part of that role, I organized speed mentoring events. I organized lunch and learns. I organized guest speakers to come and they present. We have a lunch and learn guest speakers. They talk about their topic. But if I'm doing a speed mentoring event, I have to go find mentors. I have to go reach out to executives and directors and say, hey, we need your help in supporting this speed mentoring event. And on the day of the event, I have to introduce speakers. I have to be on stage and, and, and introduce the speaker. I have to facilitate the speed mentoring event. I have to speak up so people can hear my voice. So that really helped me start building up that confidence in myself, start building up those public speaking skills, and then uh, which motivated me to do my 52-week challenge. If I didn't have that confidence in myself to put myself on the internet or on LinkedIn, I wouldn't have started my 52-week challenge. So fast forward all that, because I got rejected from the leadership program, which got me to get involved in PAN, which got me leadership skills and public speaking skills, which inspired me to do weekly videos. And now I'm doing weekly, weekly live streams. And now I've joined podcasts. I've joined all these opportunities to speak. So that one failure you know, was a catalyst to, to all these different things. And just to wrap up the story, I again applied to the leadership program the following year, made it to the interview, and I actually got selected. And a few months later, we had the new class together, and I happened to sit next to the program manager during dinner. And he told me that last year, we gave feedback to 15 people. And you were the only one that followed through. And within the first 10 seconds of the interview, when you said, hey, I listened to your feedback. I'm starting my master's right now in engineering management. I joined PAN to take on a leadership position. Within those 10 seconds, you know, we already knew we were going to give you a spot. We just had to go through the interview. So you know, the major takeaway here is failure is okay. Always ask for feedback because that's how you learn. And you know, that's how you get better as well. And because you, you follow through on the feedback, you, you, you come back again, you apply next year. You know, they see that, hey, I actually listened to what you said. And I maybe changes. I, I took these steps. And I'm serious about this role because I'm willing to put in the time to do that. So a lot of different things came out of that rejection. But you know, I did get into that leadership development program. But you know, I think even more of that, just develop the confidence in myself, develop the public speaking skills, and just be able to be consistent with my weekly videos on LinkedIn. So that's why this is one of my favorite questions to answer. My failure, but you know, it was actually a blessing in disguise. And I'm actually glad I got rejected that one year. I love that story so much, Stephen. And it really resonates with me because after I had worked as a journalist for 20 years and the last 14 of them at CNN, they didn't renew my contract. And initially it was humiliating and embarrassing because they leaked it to the press and I couldn't even leave with my head held high. They just kind of kicked me to the curb. But the truth is, it was such a gift. I am so unbelievably grateful that they didn't renew my contract because the truth was, even though it hurt my ego, I had actually been unhappy at CNN for the prior three and a half years because my son had been born and I never saw him. I was working all the time, but I didn't have the headspace or the courage to leave. I did not have the courage to quit. So it took them not renewing my contract for me to then leave. And guess what? I then had the headspace to think about, well, what else would I want to do? And that's a whole nother story. So thank you so much for sharing that. It is like the quintessential example of how something that seems awful actually has a massive silver lining and ends up 
being much better for you in the longer run. Last question, Stephen. If you could go back to college, back to San Jose State University, do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I would give myself the same advice I tell all the college students I meet with throughout the school year who are still in school. I tell them, go join a club, go join an organization, and go develop those leadership skills. I didn't realize how important that was until three years in, after I got rejected for from the leadership development program, I decided to join the CAN organization. And because, especially in school, there's a lot less pressure being a part of these organizations because who do you work with? Just your peers, right? Who do you need to, you know, quote unquote, impress in form of an event? Just your peers, right? You don't have to go talk to a vice president. You don't have to talk to a director. You just organize events. So it's never too early to develop those leadership skills, to, never, to develop those public speaking skills, to develop those soft skills. And you really don't learn that in a classroom. You don't learn that, you know, in an engineering class, you know, for example. But you just learn it by being in those situations. You know, you get more and more comfortable with public speaking. You learn how to adapt in different situations. What happens on the day of an event when... You know, when something goes wrong, when food isn't available, when, when whatever goes wrong, you're able to adapt and learn from that experience. And that's, that's what I did in my role in the panelization. I you know, took on more and more responsibility year after year. But you know, college is a great place to, to start learning those skills when there's no pressure or there's no severe consequences that come out of it. So that's my number one advice to college students. Join an organization, find a group that you're passionate in and start developing those leadership skills. And also, looks great on your resume as well. That has that added benefit. Great advice. You can follow Stephen on LinkedIn. The hashtag Stephen helps you. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N helps you. As you heard, he's got weekly LinkedIn lives and tons and tons of content to help you level up. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, for making so much time at the end of a long day for you with me and the T4C community. You totally crushed it. Yeah, thank you so much. I you know, appreciate you having me on your podcast. Just another opportunity that comes up, right? When you, you put yourself on LinkedIn and start putting content out there. So again, thank you, Andrea, for all the research you've done. I can't believe you dug to the specific words on my resume. But again, I appreciate all that research and this was a lot of fun. I'm glad to to share my story with, with your audience. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.